and welcome to a very special edition of Movies and Tea, as tonight we're going to be running down our own top tens of the last decade. Looking back at the films which made the most impact between 2010 to 2020, and uh, it's certainly an interesting decade to say the least, as free of the golden age of the independent scene, it was a year that we also saw some really interesting films as many of those independent directors who came up in the previous decade really found their stride in this this year um, at the same time we also was a decade where we saw a number of hidden gems coming to the forefront and it's going to be interesting obviously to see when we run for our list to see what uh, made the list uh, but as always I'm your host Edward Jones and joining me of course is my co-host Kim hello and Kim I mean it's going to be interesting, obviously, to see, because I have no idea what's on your list, and I don't think you have any idea what's going to be on my list, so um, this is going to be really sort of interesting to see where our sort of interests have lied over the last sort of decade, really, and what more especially takes that uh, top spot. Is. There's a, looking at the films that was released, it's, you know, there's good, got a lot of potential for it to go uh, anyway, so... I mean, did you have much difficulty compiling the list, or...? Well, the difficulty is, you know, from all the movies you've seen, how to compile it all together, and, you know, even if you use, like, I was using Letterboxd to just kind of remind myself of everything I've seen, and yeah. still, it's like, a lot of movies, at, you know, you think about it at that moment that you watched it, maybe it was five stars, and then you think about it now, and you're like, well, I haven't seen it since, do I really think it's still five stars? Does it have that rewatchability element? Is it good because it's that it has the impact but not the rewatchability? I think a lot of movies are are like that, you know, like where I think that there's a few movies that almost made it on the list because I thought they were phenomenal movies. But at the same time, if you ask me whether I would watch it again, it might have been a little bit too heavy for me to want to watch again. And then that was a constant debate. Yes, of course. So um, it's. Looking at obviously what's coming out because it's really sort of around this sort of decade that we start seeing like the Marvel movies coming into dominance. We've got Star Wars coming up, and really Disney show what sort of how you know bankrupt they are with the ideas as they just basically start buying out franchises to uh, plug up the flagging empire. Really, so there's a lot of that appearing on there. At the same time, we also start seeing some. Interesting uh, moves we see, like the likes of the raid coming through and the night night contra us. Uh, Netflix and and Amazon really get on the international game, and we see things such as like the Wandering Earth coming in across and Snowpiercer finally getting the UK release. So, it compared to the previous decade, I found myself with less sort of of those essential picks. I mean, if we were doing this in the previous decade. I would just be over what well, we're trying to be like a top forty, but this year I was sort of more of a top twenty of like those films that sort of like really sort of stuck with me. Uh, what other films that sort of like I've sort of enjoyed, but they just not really sort of had that sort of all time classic status. So, mm. but um, let's uh, kick things off. So, what did you have for your number ten pick? How about you start? Okay, fine. I'll start. Um, and my number 10 pick is the uh, film The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then The Bigfoot uh, this is a film that I saw recently it's available currently on Netflix um, now 
when you obviously uh, hear the uh, title, you think, oh my god, this is going to be like some B-movie fab, and it's really kind of surprising because it's not, as it's really a big character piece, and sees Sam Elliott in his usual grizzled form as a former secret uh, service agent who is responsible for killing one of the Hitlers, um, and is now living out a quiet life in his hometown with his dog, and basically spends his days trying to make peace of what he did during the war before he's sort of drawn back into the life as he's recruited by the the government to go hunting for uh, the Bigfoot, which is currently responsible for spreading a disease that threatens, the, threatens basically all life on Earth. Um, while the film obviously has that sort of B-movie undertone and it's a lot different than it is, and it's actually just really a chance for Sam Elliott to really sort of shine and just really give a real sort of character-based um, appearance, even though it does feel sort of kind of rushed in its last 30 minutes when he goes on hunt for the elusive Bigfoot. But um, I really enjoyed this. It was, uh, I think Sam Elliott really sort of knocks it out of the park, and for his performance alone, it's definitely worth checking out. Hmm. I haven't seen it yet, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I was, uh, I, I didn't go see it because I think it was sold out when it was at Fantasia. So I didn't end up going to see it, but I heard very interesting things about it that it was a pretty decent movie. I mean, I I hope to catch it eventually. I'm not sure if it's on Netflix Canada, though. Okay. Maybe. I don't know. So, but it's, uh, I think since it's appeared on like Netflix now, we've seen it sort of like getting that sort of murmurs the same way that uh, the guest did where it seems like the people just saw everyone seems to be wanting to talk about it for the moment or somebody's saying that they're watching it constantly so it's uh it's, it's one definitely worth checking out if you aren't already so mm. but what did you have in number 10 i finally decided so yeah did you? Yes. i've been having a very big struggle in number 10 where between two movies and one's a netflix one and one's a much heavier movie so i'm gonna say the movie that i didn't get through was the Hate You Give, which is last year's movie. Both are now last year's movies. And then um, in number 10, what finally made it was, I think, one of my all-time favorite movies in 2018, and probably the movie that I watched the most, and that's To All the Boys That I've Loved Before, which is an adaptation of a book by the same name by Jenny Han, um, about a girl who has her, her letters um, secretly sent out uh, that she's wrote, written to her crushes before. And not all of them are very relevant, but eventually she ends up having um, a fake relationship with one of the guys uh, called Peter to uh, to just, you know, have that kind of uh, where where it's like, you know, they have a fake relationship that becomes real. And it's all kinds of cuteness. It's it's very like very like teen coming of age. And um, it's really nice because it's a really great adaptation of the book. They made the perfect changes to make it adaptable on the big screen and stuff like that. And, you know, it brought a lot of fame to, I think it really highlights one of the better movies that Netflix has produced at this point. Yeah. And uh, it's one that I keep failing to, to see, but it's uh, it certainly caught my interest. And I know that we've talked about it before off air. And so, um, who knows, maybe I'll work it into the festive viewing. Cause it seems like the sort of thing that I could see myself watching over the festive period. Certainly. I just want to justify one thing to people who really, because I know there were a lot of people who really loved the hate, to, the hate you give also. And I, and I, you know, I really thought like these two movies are struggling at number 10 for a really like the entire, I don't know, two weeks we've been finding this. Um, 
So, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, Hate You Give is a movie that is really well done. Also an adaptation. Really well adapted. Um, and it, it kind of has that more impactful message about, um, you know, the violence in the neighborhood and what it does to um, the younger generation and the negative impact it has. And it's a very touching movie and, and all that stuff. And, you know, the ending scene is, is, is really, really... Um, it's kind of like a bit traumatic, I guess. <laughs> it it kind of hits you really hard. So, um, yeah, I know. But, I mean, like, the, the issue with this one is that because it's so heavy, I, I probably wouldn't go back to watch it. And that was kind of the factor that didn't, that didn't win. Because in my list, there's a lot of movies here that are fun, entertaining. But at the same time, they're also, they have a bit of depth. And maybe, you know, not all have great rewatchability. But we'll see. <laughs> Okay, so number nine uh, is a never independent film, and that is Chef uh, from 2014, uh, directed by John Favreau, who, after a sort of string of big budget films, decided to take things right back to basics um, with a budget of just 11 million, um, put together this little indie film about a chef who like the uh, director decides to go back to basics and open a food truck after getting into a confrontation with one of his critics the film has gone on to inspire uh, his own cooking show with John Favreau and uh, chef Roy Choi who also serves the co-producer and oversaw the menus and food preparation for the film this is a film that really sort of celebrates just the joy of cooking and just food in general and it also features probably one of the sexiest grilled cheese sandwiches you're going to see on film which if you watch the uh the chef show it even sh they show you how to make that very very sandwich which is pretty cool so um this is a film I, as i said i really enjoyed in the same way that high fidelity celebrates the love of music music collecting here we've got a very a film which celebrates you know just the joy of cooking and just taking pride in in making things as um, as we see throughout this, and it's just fun seeing Favreau having fun on the camera, and not doing being so like caught up in something so full of like special effects and high concept. And here he's going joined by a really great cast, uh, obviously from with uh, Bottom Family, Sofia Vega and John Legismo, who's just in his usual energetic form, and uh, Robert Downey Jr. also puts in the cameo appearance as well, along with uh, Scott Johansson and Dustin Hoffman. So. Yeah, no, I, it's it's the funniest thing that I'm I'm really big on these kind of cooking things, and I've never gotten around to any food movies in the recent decade, yeah. like Burnt or Chef or something like that. I haven't watched mm. any of those. Um, it's really weird. I mean, Chef is it's just like you for to all the boys I've loved before. <laughs> Chef has been on my list forever, and I've never gotten around yeah. to it. Um, it's definitely on my list for next year, though. I'm, I'm starting to draft up movies to watch next year, like must-watches to catch up with. After, you know, drafting this, a lot of movies came to my attention that uh, <laughs> I'm really behind on. So, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that you can pretty much just fit into the Grand Canyon everything I'm behind on at the moment. So it's uh, it's plenty to, to watch. But me, yeah, Chef was also a Friday Film Club pick for myself. So uh, definitely the love love for it has been pretty vocal over the uh, over the years since i saw it so uh yeah so my uh ninth one is also a 2018 movie man 2018 was a really good year apparently i guess you'd call it an indie film um i first caught it at fantasia festival um and it's this film which brings in this whole new generation of um this whole new sub-genre of kind of 
uh, horror films or kind of that style. And that's kind of like the cyber found footage. And in my case, I thought this was done probably one of the best ways um, that I think it could have been executed. And uh, this is Searching um, with uh, John Cho uh, as a father who searches through all of her, his uh, 16-year-old daughter's um, stuff and like all her social media and deeps, you know, breaks into pretty much her laptop to find clues to track where she, where she is after she goes missing. It's all shot through because of the found footage element. It's all shot through kind of like a webcam and just a webcam of that or or on the the phone cameras or from like all kind of like angles and that sort of thing, all like Skype conversations and all that stuff. Um, you know, a lot of movies have already done that in this decade where it really came alive with like, you know, starting off with like open windows and, and, and um, unfriended. And, and, you know, those movies that eventually came to the point of 2018 where... They came out with this one, which is which is uh, which was both a really good script and also really well executed and and just done really well in the sense that it's kind of like you know we really embracing that technology around us and it's it's it takes it it just does a really really like outstanding way. Yeah, searching one that uh, somehow failed to make my list, even though I did really enjoy it. It's you're right in that it's part of that social media horror trend. I mean, Open Windows didn't do anything for myself. I really enjoyed Unfriended and its uh, follow-up, Unfriended Two: Dark Web, and uh, Searching was again just really fantastic. I think Searching is probably the more glossier of the social media horrors, and uh, it's got a real good. It's got a good uh, build up to it, and just the way that it uses the the media and just how the story and the mystery unravels. Yeah, uh, was just really, really, really good. I think I don't know, but the ending. I think because it builds it up so much, I think the ending was always going to be perhaps a little disappointing. But it the journey that uh, that you take is really fantastic, and it's got a really fantastic lead performance there as well from an actor who. I think we'd sort of written off as just being, you know... Funny guy. C, C, yeah, a C-cast member. I mean, he did the Howard and Kumar movies, and now with this, I mean, it sort of showed that he could do actual acting. Um, he had some actual acting job. And I think it's also helped the fact he's aged into it, which makes me just feel all the more older, that all these guys that I sort of, like, came up watching in, like, American Pie and stuff are now playing, like, the dad roles yeah. and things in... In films, so uh, and obviously we got to we get to look forward to him playing Cowboy Bebop next uh, <laughs> when he when he recovers from his injury, of course. Mm. Yeah, so no, I mean, searching. I think I, I get where you're coming from with the ending, but for me, I, I had no problems with it. I thought like I was very thrilled by the whole process, and mm. it might have to do with the fact that I did watch it the first time on a big screen, so it really like kind of like engulfed you into the experience with a gigantic screen. Um, but, that really helps for the yeah. um, all the text box because yeah. my TV is never big enough, and I always have to keep reading them out for my wife. So, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then and then you know there there's the whole element that it's not only about you know this search digs into a lot deeper and about you know how technology and you know the communication between your children really 
changes, you know, how, you know, it's separated and it has that whole dramatic element to it, but it never really, like, lingers there, but really puts in the fact that sometimes these things might lead to, you know, secrets and, and um, you know, things that are danger to, to the children and stuff like that. And I think that there's a really good message hidden between this whole, you know, this whole thriller in, in, you know, in general. Definitely so. Definitely so. Yeah. So you're number eight. Uh, my number eight pick. Now, <laughs> this is actually just changed as of recording because originally my number eight pick was going to be the French Horror Raw. Um, but I've actually decided that I'm going to go a different direction with it and go instead with The Devil's Double. Uh, this is a very under-the-radar movie from 2011, directed by Lee Tamahori, um, in which Dominic Cooper plays uh, Yetif Yahya. In uh, 1987, he's an Iraqi soldier who is recruited to become the bullet catcher for Saddam Hussein's son, Yudah Hussein, also played here played by Cooper. Um this is based on a true story as Saddam Hussein, much like his son, had a number of lookalikes uh, that um, posted him at different occasions to prevent him from being assassinated was the belief. And these uh, bullet catchers got to basically live the life of the person that they were doubling and had access to all the palace and riches that uh, go with it. And this is the world that uh, Yetif is basically brought into at the same time discovering the sort of corruption and the violence within this system really fantastic uh, performance by Dominic Cooper who manages to play both roles um, so perfectly and it just seeing how how Yudeh uh, Hussein looks it really surprised me the fact that he didn't get uh, offered the role of Freddie Mercury in the Queen biopic so but uh, you know we all know how that turned out but the film itself has um, has got a real good thriller edge to it, and also contains a number of surreal moments, such as seeing Saddam Hussein play tennis against himself. It's a film that's really well worth uh, discovering, and it's just surprised me the fact that for the amount of critical buzz that it got at the time, that it sort of sunk uh, beneath the beneath the radar, really. But definitely one that's uh, still worth checking out. I've never even heard of it, so I have nothing to say. See? <laughs> All the more worth it being on there now, so. But, uh, yeah, Kim, what was your number eight? Uh, my number eight was also a huge debate that I just literally changed. Um, it originally was uh, 2016's The Mermaid, directed by Stephen okay. Chow. That's another one on my watch list for sure. Yeah, and now I changed it to actually um, a 2019 um, animation um, so, uh, my number eight is White Snake, which is, um, the first collaboration pretty much between, I believe it was, uh, it was the first animation produced by, um, Light Chaser Animation. I, I think that's, uh, a collab work with, I think, Warner Bros. Studios or something like that. Um, I can't remember the exact detail behind it, but White Snake is pretty much, um, a really outstanding, um, Chinese... China made pretty much um, computer animated fantasy film. Um, it takes kind of like the origin story or kind of like the prequel to a really traditional Chinese fable legend of the white snake, which has been done a billion times in like movies and TV series and all kinds of things um, in all shapes and form. But no one has ever told the tale of the prequel of how the white snake came from and all that sort of stuff. 
So it was really interesting to, you know, see the story have a new, kind of have a breath of, uh, breath of fresh air just to kind of like breathe some new life into something that for me, I'm very familiar with, obviously. And also at the same time, it really kind of brings up, I think that it's important to be on this list also because while Chinese cinema, like from, you know, like uh, mainland China and whatnot, is more, is still very censored in some ways. I think that it's really important that a lot of the movies are coming out right now. And and as these movies are coming out, we're starting to see this um, focus on, you know, like uh, tradition and what they have to offer is a lot of really great storytelling and a lot of, you know, I guess a different point of view on a different things based on their, their's like their, the stories that come out of, you know, um, China itself. So, you know, White Snake has done really well. I mean, it's really colorful. It's really uh, comedic. Um, the animation is done super beautifully and it, it almost, you know, like you can feel like just the colors and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think it's, it's a real, like compared to, you know, previous Chinese animation that I've seen, this is a really big step forward and, and just how far, you know, their grasp of the modern technology and just computer, uh, computer animation has come. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, one that uh, sounds good. I'm always interested in that's the sort of uh, stories and much like Monkey, you write it, it's the sort of story that has been done several hundred times before, but they always seem to find fresh new takes on on the uh, story for sure. So that's another one for my own list, definitely. So number seven is a film that was recommended to me by Jess over at French Tales Sunday, and a film that I've been in love with absolutely since i saw it uh, so much so that um it you if you go on my uh, blog from the Dust dvd hell it's actually uh, makes up the header there uh that's uh the film i'm talking about of course is me and l and the dying girl um this is a film directed by uh, Alfon- Al- alfonso gomez rijon um uh, released in 2015 it's a comedy drama about a pair of uh, friends who who are sort of fanatical film film fans and at the same time spend all their time sort of making their sort of parody of uh, these classic films that they they watch and creating their own little versions such as like The Prunes of Wrath and Raging Bullshit and Eyes Wide Butt um, with the two um, being sort of drawn into uh, befriending a uh, girl called Rachel, here played by Olivia Cook, who's been diagnosed with leukemia, and basically her parents have um, hit, sorry, Greg's parents have uh, said you know go and be friends with her because you know she need go and keep her company, and the two basically uh, form this uh, this this unique friendship that uh, they soon brought bring in l into as well and it's just a really sort of touching story and for the as well it's one of those films that i would sort of like pull along the sides of likes of 50 50 as it's it's about uh, someone facing dealing with a, a terminal illness and at the same time having the sort of hope and and uh light that of to deal with that the situation so it's a really sort of a touching, touching story, and one that I really want to read the book of in uh, next year. So, hopefully, I'll get around to doing that. But the film itself, I've seen several times, and it's uh, really well worth checking out. I pretty much 
had a feeling this would make your list because <laughs> I know how much you do love this movie. And yeah, it's one of the few ones on the list that I've, I've actually seen also. Um, I remembered it being really charming, but and, yeah. and, and I'm a, I do like Olivia Cook when she picks good projects um, because she happens <laughs> to sometimes been picking pretty odd ones and bad ones so <laughs> but yeah no um she she is a really uh, she is a really good actress and paired up with you know the the two boys there that that do a, a really good job at just you know the the quirkiness of the whole film is is really nice um yeah definitely it's it's that indie quirkiness that we really sort of missed out in this decade because when we look at the previous decades we were sort of overrun with indie quirkiness we had films like ghost world and fun sucker and and the we had uh, like Rushmore and just so these all these sort of like quirky indie directors like um Gondre and Spike Jones sort of really come into into their own and doing these like fun little indie movies. And then when we get into this decade they sort of all vanished for whatever reason. Everyone was suddenly went to make more serious films and when you have like sort of like a, a quirky indie picture like like this or dope, you kind of really want to um sort of really want to grasp hold of it and uh, it's nice to see Netflix as well, sort of like picking up on, on these sort of projects. As we had the that time travel uh, film from Spike Lee's uh, cousins, I want to say. But uh, yes, it's as I said, uh, I like quirky indie movies, and this is definitely <laughs> definitely in that category, and why I probably like it so much. So, yeah. but uh, Kim, yeah, so uh, my number seven, which I've been just switching around nonstop right now. <laughs> Uh, I finally landed on um, a more indie choice, and that would have to go to something that I think was one of my first Friday Film Club picks that I don't know if you've seen yet. <laughs> but it's the uh, 2017 uh, Mayhem with uh, Steve Yun and uh, Samara Weaving. Obviously, Samara Weaving has gone a long way since then, and she's really, like, really picked up on this um, tough chick kind of gig. And it's, it's really working for her. I mean, whether it's, you know, starting off in Mayhem where, you know, she's she's doing this and, and then she moves on to, you know, the babysitter. And then recently she did um, Ready or Not, which I, I still have to see. So anyways, Mayhem is um, kind of a take on, I guess, a zombie film, but where humans are still kind of in control of their feelings. It's just the rage and all the, you know, it really, what it is, is this is a, a virus which ends up, you know, spreading through an office complex. And it causes these workers to act out on their worst impulses. So um, as, you know, uh, Steve Yun's character and Samara Weaving's character is trying to, you know, really work out that frustration they have with upper management, it's kind of like the raid. They're fighting from the bottom and working to the top. To, to kind of like to kind of like take revenge on the upper management who screwed them over. And it's in the most, you know, like balls to the walls way where, you know, you use all kinds of weapons and, and there's all kinds of intense scenes and it's just, you know, like a bloody affair and there's all these funky, you know, escapes and funky fight scenes and um, just really over the top but also really fun and pretty funny too i would say it's it's definitely still on the list <laughs> so um since since you brought it to my attention but yeah i mean this marked shudder out as being a mainstream 
sort of player competing with the likes of Amazon and Netflix with the projects they were picking up. And from here, they've only gone on to continue to have the sort of thing on the pulse when it comes to picking up these indie little projects. And certainly, Stephen Young coming here fresh off The Walking Dead, so it was good to see him already picking up a, a film credit to his, his name and even if it's not sort of striving too much from what he was doing before but as we were saying the shadow of uh everyone continued to pick up on these fun credits including um a film which i'm very surprised didn't touch me in my list now um which was uh tigers are not afraid um uh, which has been <laughs> just a phenomenal yeah. um hit and i think the reason i hadn't included it in my own list is just the fact i'm still processing it through because it and it's it's definitely in that also ran title, but I don't. I still, as I said, it. I don't want to say you like. I'm still uh, on that sort of fence of like, oh, was it? Was I just so caught up in like the experience, or was it like as really as good as it is? But I've seen it a couple of times. I still want to. I still um, still excited about it. So that's definitely my also ran title. But um, yeah, yeah. Well done, to Shudder for for getting out there and staking your claim out there. Yeah, no, I still don't need distribution rights. <laughs> I get, I get where you're coming from. I think that you know my list would have had a lot more 2019 films if it wasn't for the fact that I, I kind of sat around and I thought about the fact whether it was just you know the moment, and it hasn't had enough mm. time to kind of give it space to kind of like grow in its awesomeness or decrease in its you know decrease its value as, in my mind as 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 the time goes by, like how long does it stand in the test of time? Right. Um, and while 2019 had some really standout movies, I can't say that, um, like the rest of my list doesn't have any more very, you know, 2019 movies in that sense, because a lot of movies that I watched, I felt probably because I watched a lot of more like mindless entertainment, guilty pleasure type (laughs) films nowadays. So yeah. it's like anything that is in 2019 that everybody is saying is really awesome, dramatic, Oscar fodder, whatever. I haven't watched and I probably won't watch until 2020 when I get the chance and it lands on Netflix or whatever, you know, whatever streaming service I have at that moment, you know. So, you know, that's that's my justification on that. So, you know, just saying to everybody who's listening to this and thinks that we have some really odd choices that in your mind wouldn't, wouldn't have been there, um, you know. It's just sometimes we're watching different things. I think this is is the thing. When you come to look back at the decade, it's always going to be the films that came out earlier in the decade that are going to be the ones ones that sort of like come more to the forefront than the ones that you just recently seen. As they've obviously had that time to breathe and to, you know, grow in your mind. You've had multiple viewings and you've been able to sort of fully embrace what the film is. Whereas something that's released this year is obviously going to be, has to be like really sort of stand out yeah. to have like been that sort of bona fide classic straight off the bat. Yeah. Um, to sort of break in there. But I would, as I said, I mean, you can go back and listen to our podcast on it, on it to hear our thoughts on Tugger's Not Afraid and. I think we were both very sort of. Oh, that I'm. I'm telling you, Tigers are not afraid. Almost did make it into my top ten. It really did. And then I thought about it, and I was like, "But there's so many other movies." And then my list got to get long, and choices yeah. came in. And then over the course of like the two weeks, it kind of changed, and you know, so it, it, it's all just you know being unable to decide. And I think anybody tackling this top ten at one point will release it and then think about it later and be like oh maybe i should have added that maybe i should have added this you know yeah 
definitely. So. Yeah. So moving on, what's your number six? Uh, number six. Now this is gonna be a title where everyone's gonna be like, "Why the hell did you put that for?" But this is a film that I really absolutely resonated with, and I really love the original film as well. That this is kind of a sequel to, um, and that's uh, this is forty. Um, now, this is forty follows on from Knocked Up, um, a film I also really enjoyed. I think when I was expecting my first child, Knocked Up was like. The film which sort of like you know grounded me and made me realize you know you can actually do this it's not as as scary you can get it together as it presented us with this realistic portrait of um from a guy's perspective as, as well just like the idea of impending fatherhood and it's a really sweet movie and i know that Catherine hegel says it's her worst movie that she's ever made but look at her filmography i would really hate to know think what she considers her best movie if she if she's not saying knocked up so but um this is 40 is uh from 20, 2012 uh directed once again by Jared Apatow starring Paul Rudd who can do no wrong it also stars uh Japato's wife Leslie Mann and his own kids um here playing the uh the mother and daughter roles uh, respectively um here the film picks up after the events of uh, Knocked Up as we follow, this time we follow uh, Pete and Debbie who are facing uh, the impendingness of 40 as well as taking stock on where their lives are as they reach that sort of uh, middle age point and uh, have to look back at, at what, where they are and where they're, and, uh, where they're heading as um, Pete struggles to with his record business and at the same time Debbie is uh dealing with dealing with her, her own sort of status as uh, as an older lady so it's a really fun film and uh, one that's actually surprisingly long especially for a comedy it really goes on quite a bit 133 minutes um this film should also be noted that it has got one of the creepiest moments ever committed to film as uh, we get to see with Jason Siegel somehow managed to out creepy himself in a scene with Megan Fox that I don't know I think almost made me throw up in my mouth but at the same time we do get to see the return of Charlene Yee which is always welcome so <laughs> yeah this is this is 40 is a movie that I've never wanted to see so okay um but I didn't know it was a sequel to Knocked Out and Knocked Up and I didn't see Knocked <laughs> Up either um so, I don't know. I think it just has to do with whoever's in it I'm not too interested in. And I got a little bit scared because Katherine Heigl at that point had... I'd seen a lot of movies that, you know, after Grey's Anatomy, it really just wasn't so fun. <laughs> so, yeah. I kind of, like, just needed a break and whatnot. So, I it never it never came around to it. it. It It's always been on, like, kind of, like, my Netflix list whenever it's there. And it reappears every once in a while when it comes back on Netflix. And I never managed to remember to watch it. I just always pass over it. So maybe uh, maybe I'll have to try and do that. But uh, mm. I don't know. To make it to This Is 40 and watch a more than two-hour comedy or whatnot seems it's... quite a bit crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously classic comedy. I would say it's more of a social satire than, you know, just a, a yuck-yuck sort of comedy. And certainly it doesn't go... <laughs> It, as hard, it doesn't go as like hard to do like the obvious humor that's knocked up. It's a lot more subtle in its humor. And I think it's carried a lot by just the on-screen chemistry of Leslie Mann and Paul Rudd. And Paul Rudd's just 
laid back sort of casual charm really which sort of brings a lot to the film um and I know that it was kind of funny because I was speaking to Todd over at Forgotten Films and about this film and he's sort of like, oh, I, I don't think this representation of 40. I'm sitting there going, you know, I'm 30 and this is a very good representation of my life. So maybe <laughs> they should just rename this is 30 to my, for myself. So but life is a freaking war zone right there. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, and uh, it, you know, it, it's... I, I just uh I I just I just, just really enjoyed it. It's one that I keep returning uh, back and forth to and it's one that only seemed for myself has only really got better since the more I've seen it, so But uh yes, uh what about yourself, Kim? What yeah. do you have at the illustrious number six spot? Okay, my number six. Uh, I, I really love hitting the six point because everything from now on I haven't touched at all and I don't ever want to touch it. So <laughs> I'm really happy. <laughs> Indecisiveness is out. Um, 2016, I am going um, foreign yet again, I think probably for the last time on this list. And um, I have to, I wish I would have put this higher, but I really, I guess I really struggled with putting it higher. Uh, and that was um, 2016's Train to Busan, which um, is essentially a somewhat new take refreshing kind of take on you know being trapped in a train in a zombie apocalypse um i feel like at this point it's kind of like korean cinema is having its rise as well and this is somewhat a really nice you know very convincing um horrific but very determined in that kind of like drama like uh sequence of pretty much a a, a, a a father and his daughter that pretty much bonds over the course of of this of this film in just you know the 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 father really gets a a growing up sort of feeling where it's kind of a mini coming of age for him where he learns a lot more about you know just you know being loyal with you know being grouping to other with other people um, and obviously, this movie also brought forth, you know, the very fantastic uh, Dong Suk Ma, who goes along to do, you know, great films like The Outlaws, and um, he did uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Weird. Yes. Yes. And, um, yeah, and then he did The Gangster, The Cop, and The Devil uh, recently. So, <laughs> a lot of things like that. Um, but, I mean, in general, he always plays that kind of, like, very, you know... Um, very tough guy sort of role and it really you know it really fits him as you know just having that one liner he's kind of like the arnold schwarzenegger you know uh sylvester stallone kind of style where you know he has that you know he just has that presence and those one-liners that match the character that he's doing um and and it works for him really well and and you know yeah so i mean back to train to busan i think it's one of those movies that uh, really kind of took the world by storm in the sense that um, I think before that there was a lot of Korean cinema that did actually, you know, hit worldwide. But Train to Busan was, you know, like a horror movie and, you know, it's about a zombie virus breaking out in South Korea. And it brings in a lot of elements of, you know, the zombie, um, kind of like the zombie virus kind of concept. But at the same time, I really appreciated, you know, like the different angles they had and just, you know, how... Uh, it really, like, took the time to, you know, let us get to know these, you know, survivors uh, while trying to survive through, you know, the different sections and finding a way to get out of this train and, and get out of this mess and just, you know. 
Yeah, Trent Basson, uh enjoyed that sort of battle royale sort of word of mouth where a lot of people who don't watch subtitle movies have enjoyed Train to Busan and it's just sort of really sort of gained recognition. It's also gives the zombie films a much needed boost in the arm because it's been pretty much flagging between The Walking Dead running the, the genre into the ground and every two-bit filmmaker giving the zombie movie release now that uh, zombies have sort of been the in thing for quite a while so it was really exciting to when Train to Busan came out and it was an it was an exciting zombie movie again which has mm-hmm. certainly been a while since we had and certainly it was a surprise that when a director like Yoon Sang-ho was the one to give it us who's obviously probably best known for having a background war in animation with the likes of King of Pigs and The Fake and um, he also did a an animated sort of prequel to this uh, with Seoul St- Station as well, which is pretty worth checking out as well. But no, Train to Busan's um, a very good good pick and certainly reminds us uh, of the interest in cinema that is still obviously coming out of South out of uh, South Korea, which uh, again really came to the forefront with like the likes of the host and has sort yeah. of really been uh, chilling them out since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's it's really nice because, I mean, recently we had the announcement that Train to Busan 2 is happening. Um, you know, it's still very early pre-production stage, according to IMDb. So uh, we'll, we'll see, you know, when that's going to happen. Yeah, Peninsula, where it's very hard to find any sort of details on it. We've got a lot of casting information. I just hope it's not like the host 2, where it's like, we're making it, and then we just don't hear anything for years. So, uh Hopefully not. So that takes us now into the top fives. And uh, I don't know about yourself, Kim, but this is like where all the gold of the ends of rainbow is. It's sort of like if you're in this top, my top five, then these are like the lockdown solid gold uh, hits. And kicking off number five is a director who we've constantly talked about doing a season on and somehow constantly failed to actually make it happen. And. Um, that's uh, the film I'm going with for number five. It's Moonrise Kingdom by Wes Anderson, again from 2012. A uh, film which uh, really, for myself, was sort of like the last of his re- truly great movies. As Since then, he's done um, uh, The Grand Budapest Hotel, which was kind of hit and miss, and Other Dogs, which I need to go back and watch to sort of know where I am because I felt that the voice casting choice in that kind of let it down with the likes of Brian Cranston, who's since Breaking Bad is now just too intense to play any sort of light role for myself. He's always going to be the same intense role he was on Breaking Bad. But um, the film itself, Moonrise Kingdom, it sees a pair of star-cluffed lovers. Um, We've got a young orphan boy who sneaks away from his scout camp to unite with his pen pal and love interest, a girl with aggressive tendencies. And the two meet on Moonrise uh, Kingdom, and, they just, and at the same time, we have the girl, uh, Loris. Uh, <clears throat> sorry. Um, we have her parents, Susie's parents, looking for her. One of them is played by Bill Murray, and at the same time, we've got uh, Sam's whole scout troop looking for him. And of course, being young boys, they're all going to take it completely out of uh, context, the slightest bit of power, and all basically start arming themselves up to go and hunt him down. But it's got a real sort of all the sort of Anson whimsy and visual sort of style to it and it's just a re- actually a really touching love story of these two 12 year olds in love and while there's probably an awkward moment on the beach which 
is it awkward looking at it through adult eyes kind of uh it still keeps in with how these characters would sort of interact and and be around each other so it's uh definitely one that i've I want, I'm looking forward to discussing with Kim at some point, uh, as and when we get on to our Wes Anderson season. But uh, we certainly, we will. You know, it is on the cards. We've got I don't know how many seasons drafted out at this point, but um, but it's definitely one that um, I'm looking forward to discussing in depth in more detail at some point soon. Mm, yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm a complete like Wes Anderson is like other than Grand Budapest Hotel, I haven't seen anything else by him. So that season is going to be very interesting when we get there because I don't know if I would have caught up of anything else by then, but, um, I mean, Moonrise Kingdom was on my list for a while and then it left Netflix and never came back, so (laughs) 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 So, (laughs) that's a problem, right? Um, Hence why now I watch expire things leaving Netflix very closely. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, no, I mean, Moonrise Kingdom is, you know, I really like... Wes Anderson's style and while you think while you're saying that you know Grand Budapest Hotel was a hit and miss for me it was a hit um not a hit enough to make my list but yeah I mean like it was I think it was a really you know like it's a style and and you know it's kind of like this really nice style to it and I kind of like you know that kind of quirk and that kind of color palette that it had and Moonrise Kingdom I remember when it came out it had very kind of like that similar kind of idea like there there was still a lot of quirk and a lot of style to to just the the storytelling and 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 um and like just the story that was being told um a lot of imagination a lot of creativity and i really like um you know i'm really looking forward to moonrise kingdom it's always been on my list and i'm 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 desperately waiting for it to get back on netflix (laughs) at some point hopefully it's kind of interesting when you see when you say you enjoy Grand Budapest Hotel because it's kind of like playing someone the worst track on an album, and saying that they enjoy it. You go, well, the rest of the album's gonna be a real banger for you then. So, uh, but <laughs> well, you no. know, we never know. I mean, me and you, you know, why it's why it's a why it's always a fun project is we we sometimes have like we we have some opinions that that are exactly the same, and we feel very strongly about certain types of movies. But other types of movies, we tend to be a lot more, you know, on opposite sides. So, yeah. you know, that it, it, it's what makes this project so interesting to, you know, just kind of be like, oh, hey, you know, we first, you know, met up to do podcasting over something that was very, you know, surprisingly, we had the very similar taste in Asian cinema and stuff like that. And, and now as we get into, you know, kind of more Western cinema, it's, it's getting to the point where we're starting to see the things that work and don't work for us. That's something to look forward to, definitely. But uh, when you're on the subject of net, things leaving Netflix, why does Netflix never have a leaving soon section? It, like it Amazon to, have like you know, it used to have it. It used to have that, I remembered. And sometimes when you catch it at the right moment, like, I think the last month I was looking at something and in the corner it said yeah. leaving on that day. Uh, and it's, that it's was the like the random thing. Yeah. It's a it's a very frustrating thing because it's it's kind of like I don't see the reason why they shouldn't say it because like at least people will rush to go watch it or or whatever, mm. right? You and then you'll also get the idea that you know it will remind people that well if you don't watch the things you like well the contract is going to end and you won't be able to watch it again, or like you know what movies will people want to you know want you to get back to put on Netflix because then you you know 
So it, it's it's a good measure of what's going on. But then you know I don't I don't think Netflix cares too much about the movies that are coming in as much as you know the originals that they're constantly bombarding and coming out and churning out, right? Yeah, it's um, certainly the direction that they're going with original content, mainly because everyone wants to have their own streaming service, and this way they can guarantee continuous and content that's always going to be there. So rather than exactly. just like half your catalog suddenly disappearing because some distributors decided we're going to form our own network so <laughs> Disney <Yeah. laughs> uh, I've got I've got a whole other rant I can go on Disney but I'm going to save it for another day so but, <laughs> you um, write a post for the blog um. <laughs> post or book at this point but uh, yes uh, Kim fear number five my number five, and we're stepping into more mainstream mainstream stuff. Um, actually dials it back to 2014 uh, on an, another adapted film, which I was honestly really surprised turned out so well. But then, I mean, the director is David Fincher, so I guess it was okay. It was expected. Um, yeah. So my 2014 pick is Gone Girl. Um, okay. You had me wait yeah. for a minute then. <laughs> <laughs> what were you worried about? What did you think I picked? I was, I was worried you you pick one of the uh, films that was I've there's still to come up on my list. So um, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. No, but that's I, fine. No. I have a I have a good idea what's gonna be on your list. So I I avoided okay. some picks on purpose. So we're gonna talk about that in honorable mention, or if it comes up, or or if it doesn't yeah. come up on your list, I'll talk about it in honorable mention. Um, but yeah, uh, no. Um, so I picked Gone Girl. Gone Girl is is based on this book written by Gillian Flynn, who's pretty much had all her three novels adapted at this point. Um, it's a TV series or movies or whatever. Um, but Gone Girl being the first one out of the gate, surprisingly also her third novel, which was one of the more successful ones, is about a wife who disappears. And um, suddenly her husband, played by uh, Ben Affleck, which people really questioned about his role but i pictured the entire time i guess that's why this movie was so convincing for me because i pictured ben affleck in that role when i was reading the book okay. so to me it felt very natural for him to be in it uh yeah so he he kind of like suddenly the spotlight is on him and then he suddenly becomes the suspect uh because there are all these secrets that get dredged up um and you know obviously there's uh, a few twists here which um, change change the course of the story a little and it's kind of viewed through different perspectives and different ideas and the book is set in, set up in such a way that it's so clear cut that I kind of worried about how they would execute it here because if they weren't able to do that exact kind of like that kind of execution and it would kind of ruin that whole um, surprise element of everything that was coming out and like just the pieces of information that would put put it all together. Um, but, you know, David Fincher is a masterful director and, you know, obviously a director that we're going to be talking about soon in coming seasons. Um, so, you know, you know, led by Ben Affleck and uh, Rosamund Pike, who does this outstanding kind of performance here because she really hasn't had a lot of outstanding performances at this point. Um, and this, this one really, you know, drives her, her acting, you know, like her, her acting is so central that it really does carry the movie a lot. Um, and then we have kind of like a, a performance by Neil Patrick Harris, which was also pretty surprising as well. 
So, you know, and I don't know if you've seen this, but, um, you know, Gone Girl is, is a solid spot number five right now. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, Gone Girl is a film that I didn't see in the cinema, so I was kind of behind the trend with everyone else uh, who were just, like, raving about this this film and how much they enjoyed it. Certainly a surprising performance by Rosalind Pike, who is pretty just known as, you know, posh totty girl, and here really gets to do something a bit different. Ben Affleck, who I've always been a huge fan of, getting much-deserved uh, credit, and Neil Patrick Harris doing... You know, more than just the funny guy yeah. as well. He gets to do some, flex some dramatic muscle. And and if you ever wanted to see Ben Affleck and Neil Patrick Harris snooze, you get that as well. So uh, enjoy, guys. Um, or girls, I don't know, whatever you happen to like. But yeah, this is a film that um, I saw when it came on DVD and I really enjoyed it. I showed it to my, my wife and she got a real kick out of it. And it reminds me a lot of uh, He Loves Me, He Loves Me Not in the fact that you're set up with the film in so you're basically getting one perspective and then we yeah. get that turning point where suddenly the perspective is shifted and um yeah. it's done so effectively that my wife openly shouted that bitch to the screen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you know just... you know i think th- i think that for for myself one of the best parts was you know seeing the fact that you know i already knew where the story was going obviously because i had mm. already read the book and at that point i I'm, I'm i'm honestly a huge fan of jillian flynn and i really wish that she would write a third book after the fame she got from gone girl but it's still something i don't know if it's gonna happen i think she's actually writing something but it hasn't you know been finished yet but at the same time like you know I know what's going on, and and the twists are done so well that you know I I remembered we want we went to go see at the theaters and and my husband was like was like oh uh, oh Gone Girl it sounds like such a stupid movie what is it about you know and I was like you'll see you'll see and then he goes and he comes back out and I just remember like that moment of shock at every single twist that he had and then it was just so satisfying to know that you know. I was having the same, you know, enjoyment out of someone, out of someone who has seen it, but also someone who hasn't seen it isn't get lo- getting lost by the story as well. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, this is perfect fodder for the likes of David Fincher. I mean, here we have a, ma- a director who likes movies which scar, yeah. as he says. And uh, certainly this film, just in how it's, how it unfolds the story is really fantastic. It's shot incredibly well and at the same time features that soundtrack by Trent Razor and Atticus Ross of Nine Inch Nails who have just basically become the go-to guys for David Fincher soundtracks. As uh, And uh, here they produce a really fantastic soundtrack. And just how... It's not so much just about the mystery, but it's also about how, social me- how the media uh, portrays people involved in in this case and certainly as we see the persona of ben affleck you know change from the worried husband to suddenly being outed as outed for his previous misdemeanors uh shall we say and yeah. in particular how certain characters are manipulating the situation and just how they are how they've worked worked out all these uh worked out how to play this situation is just really yeah fantastic yeah and and you know it really helps that all the characters have a depth like there's hidden side to you know all of the main characters that we have here um there is there's kind of uh, a double to who they are and there's so much to discover and it's kind of like you know the movie takes the not only the point's perspective but also like you know it's kind of like peeling away an onion and there's more and more layers to discover that 
are equally fascinating as, you know, a bit traumatizing. Definitely so. And even just the the simple little things such as like Amy's treasure hunt. Yeah. That she she put organizes every year for uh, for their wedding anniversary, and just she follow like the clues and uh, that that have been laid out for um, Ben Affleck's character to follow, and it's uh yeah it's a one of those films that gets into the psyche of of its characters and at the same time still manages to throw and shock you the way that a good fella should. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So very good choice. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, so moving on to number four. Number four is uh, an interesting film in terms of distribution, as here we have a film that was released in 2013, but only got released in the UK in 2019 because the distribution for it was so shocking. And this is a film that, you know, um, our friends over in like the states and Canada would say, "Oh, you guys haven't got that." And it's like, no, we got one showing in Edinburgh at a film festival, and they disappeared. Okay, and uh, I, I know what film you're going to talk about. I was a little, little bit worried because my next pick was a 2013, also. So. Oh, okay, that's good. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the uh, 2013 film uh, Snowpiercer, which is uh, based on. Uh, the French graphic novel and directed by Bong Joon-ho, who is currently the man of the moment and not only directed The Host and uh, Okja, but uh, more recently directed Parasite, which is being widely regarded as one of the films of the year. Jimmy Fallon recently said that it's one of his films of the year as he interviewed uh, Bong on his, his show, which is a really charming interview for an interview that's carried out through a translator because obviously he's Korean and his English I, I believe that he does speak English but I believe his conversation English is is uh, it's not so good but he tends so he tends to use a translator a lot but here he really in his sort of English language debut really shows that he's able to transfer his skills over much the way the same we saw with Park Chan-wook when he did Stoker which I would have included in my list, and it was sort of hanging in there, but it uh, ended up in the also ran powers. I sort of put it below his uh, his films from his native career. But Snowpiercer is a an interesting concept. As here we have the remnants of humanity who are surviving a new ice age on a train which has an an engine which uh, continues to to run and uh, basically they are on a globe spanning track and every time that they complete a circuit of the track it marks a year in their calendar and here we see a group of uh, rebels led by Chris Evans who are in the back car- carriages who are battling their way through the carriages uh, up to the front of the engine where the upper class um, lie and uh, it's as I say it's a really fantastic film and just visually it is incredibly stunning and just one that had me absolutely gripped from beginning to end standout performance including by tilda swindon who we get to see here with a yorkshire accent which again is one of those things that i never knew i wanted to see but here she is drawing comparisons between social class and a shoe and we also get to see jamie bell we get to uh, see lights of john hurt and ed harris as well as uh go out song and uh as well as uh Bong Joon-ho regular Song Kang-ho as well so if you haven't seen Snowpiercer it was picked up by uh, Netflix to give it the UK distribution thank you to them and uh, it's definitely one that is really worth checking out it's just an absolutely phenomenal film and it was 
certainly worth the wait it took to get it over here. So I'm glad to have finally been able to see it. Yeah, I I had every intention to watch Snowpiercer before this recording. I never got around to it. So <laughs> so when you were saying, yeah, it's people who haven't seen it. Mm-hmm, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, yeah. yeah, but it's definitely on um, top priority for me uh, because, you know, even my husband recently watched it and he really liked it. And um, yeah, so it's, it's you know, it's one that I, I really look forward to. It, it looks really good. I'm a big fan of Chris Evans, big fan of Tilda Swinton. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this. I think that it's going to... I think that's going to be a really great time. Yeah, my number four is um, <laughs> is uh, is an action movie. Um, so it's the start of the fantastically great franchise that we have now, John Wick. I, you know, I think that the first John Wick really, uh, not only was it, you know, about a retired assassin that comes back out and, you know, he's, he, he's, he's, you know, has this, whole reputation that you don't know about and he's coming out and he's revenging his dog essentially and his car and all that stuff um and and you know he's just it's just you know Keanu Reeves I think at this point of where we are hasn't really had a franchise that's really um picked up since the Matrix um obviously they're they're you know running off of this fame and they're they're trying to you know get him back into the matrix with i think there's a new movie coming out next year or yep. something i wasn't aware of it until like two days ago so uh yeah but i mean john wick is like this really fun just you know uh he's such a great character to begin with and then you put him into these situations and there's this really great filming style of just you know him fighting down hallways and fighting a lot of enemies and in all kinds of ways and he's just He's just so phenomenal, but at the same time, like, there, there's, like, the whole style to it, and they pair up really great soundtracks to it, and, um, like, the whole experience of John Wick is, like, this big production, and it, it's, it's not, and you really don't feel, you know, like, the whole editing craze that's gone in. It's very, like, it's very far away cameras, and the, the action is choreographed really well, and, there, you know, it's 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 very refreshing to watch a movie like this, and especially because you know, I think the last movie I watched of Keanu Reeves was like Knock Knock or something, before John John Wick, and I really didn't like that movie. So <laughs> I was not alone on that one. I think that was the general consensus. So <laughs> you'd be surprised. I've read some positive reviews. Yeah, so John Wick is just like a phenomenal movie experience, um, and I think that you know most people agree that. You know, it, it was a, it's, you know, at maybe for some people it's not their top 10. But for me, like, I think John Wick has, has so much going for it. And it's not just John Wick because it's also these, you know, characters that are there, you know, whether it's, you know, the person who, who runs the, the hotel for assassins and I can't remember the name of it. Or, you know, like, even all the way down to the concierge that, that runs the place, to to the dog and, and you know, to all that stuff, every single element to it is kind of like a piece of a puzzle and it all fits so perfectly together. And, and I think it's just, you know, like, um, the directors and everything, it's all, everything's chosen with so much detail that, um, it's, it's just such a really great, you know, viewing experience. 
Yeah, it's uh, definitely one that came out of nowhere, this yeah. little indie fic. And I mean, Keanu Reeves has really become sort of the indie darling of the moment, really, with the projects he's choosing. And here it's sort of like a project which really... He seemed to just really sort of embrace the fact he got full control. It taps into a lot of things he likes, such as like martial arts and having the ability not just to do sort of standard action scenes, but to do sort of really inventive uh, sort of action scenes that we receive from the likes of you know the Indonesia and um, and uh, Hong Kong cinema, mm-hmm. where it's not just a case of you know good-looking guy goes in and just effortlessly beats up a bunch of guys here he's sort of like really getting down and dirty and just this got a real sort of flow to these sort of fight sequences and you see like the behind scenes footage and what when Gummy's in that and the stunt team sort of sat down with the where the drawing inspiration form when it comes to the series is just really sort of fantastic but yeah the film itself I mean it's it's just really fun this idea of this Russian former Russian hitman who's seen as this boogeyman figure for the underworld and at the same time it's develops this secretive world uh through the continental that safe haven you were talking about run by ian mcshane where you have this hotel for for hitmen and uh they've obviously talking currently about the spin-off tv series tv series called the continental which focus on the hotel you've also got the ballerina which will focus on a um female assassin which is going to be really exciting as well but um yeah i mean keanu Reeves basically just in embodies this character and has basically said that you know as long as people are interested in these movies they're just going to keep making them which is really so exciting i've yet to see the third one and um i did find that obviously with the the dog dying in the first one it and it obviously being such a key moment that Every film that's followed, the dog has been put on such a pedestal that this is probably the safest dog on film that you've ever seen. <laughs> um, but yeah, like as I said, it's just the the idea of a hitman putting his his guns to earth and then being brought out of retirement when the wrong people sort of uh, make the mistake of killing this dog. It was just a real sort of classic revenge film, and it just delivers both visually and in an action concept in a way that we hadn't seen in a long time and i'm very excited to see see where the series continues to go yeah um with the fourth one due to release in 2021 mm-hmm. you mentioned already he's obviously back to do matrix four uh with one half of the wachowskis which i have to say is really kind of funny because they've discussed i think it's lana who's returning and this guy's does the vision redirecting it's all like you know that her sister was also heavily involved in that project so what was she doing was she just making the tea or something but uh yeah matrix 4 they were so excited the fact that they've knocked the akira live action remake off the slate to uh really push forward uh, the, with the matrix 4 so but no i'm i don't know how john wick made it missed it off my list so i'm glad you picked it up <laughs> so yeah no it was it was in my first pick without without any doubt um so yeah moving on to our top three. Kicking off our, our top three is a film which I've just... It came out and I think a lot of people have just really been just super excited about it uh, since then. And that's 2014's Whiplash, directed by Damien Chazelle. And uh, more importantly, features an absolute standout performance by J.K. Simmons as an abusive uh, music instructor who pushes uh, his jazz drumming student... Um, hit played by Mars Teller to ever more sort of increasing 
the tough and sort of demands and heights as the two enter into a very sort of competitive rivalry as uh, they both try to outdo each other um in a way that we haven't really seen in that sort of student teacher world before but if you ever want to know how hard drumming is watch this film as uh, we see the film shown in graphic detail like cracked hands and bloody palms as this young dr jazz student is just forced to drum harder and harder and it's uh incredibly visual and just so much more brutal than you would think a movie about drumming would be but just seeing this young sort of first year jazz student um being pushed by this teacher who's as, as abusive as he is knows that he can sort of like get him to that next level and drives him with so much passion that there's a scene where he gets involved in a car crash and drags himself out of the car wreckage to make this performance um even though he's like heavily injured he's like so determined to make it to this recital just so he can not let this instructor down it's just an absolutely astounding uh astounding film and one that's definitely worth checking out and surprisingly doesn't lose any of its perform sort of like power um on the sort of those repeated viewings that you would expect from like the initial sort of shock and awe of what you're watching but um it's definitely as i say it's never lost anything and i think that jk simmons winning best supporting actor was just definitely well deserved for this film as as he as he really gives an absolutely commanding performance here yeah oscar movies is not my forte so mm. i've been getting a lot of crap from my co-worker for not having seen whiplash yet so you know uh i'm I, it's definitely on my list uh i'm i really like jk simmons and i really think that he's this underrated actor mm. um especially before you know um before whiplash happened and you know um you know he's he's he appears in these weirdest oddest places that you can find like you know he's the father in um juno and and all that sort of thing and and there there's so many places that you can find him and even recently i mean the most recent thing that i've seen of him is is his voice acting work in klaus the netflix christmas movie um and it's it's just, you know, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to Whiplash. I mean, especially because, you know, uh, I do have some music training. Obviously not the intense training that was happening here. But I can understand, you know, where all this is coming from and, and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm really interested in seeing this. I just, it's just, I just don't know why I've never gotten around to it. I think it's just the fact that it's a very dramatic experience. And um, at that point, I had already stopped watching a lot of, like, the Oscar more dramatic movies yeah um yeah unless i really needed to and um i really hope it's still on netflix though i don't know if it is i think this one has the i mean yes it is an oscar-winning film but at the same time it's it's not the most obvious oscar bait yeah exactly it's, like the, in, exactly. it's the, like the low indie film that could and i mean certainly when it comes to jk simmons he's much like john c mcginley and the fact the man's a human chameleon so yeah. you can see him playing the leader of white supremacist movement in oz and as you said the next moment he can be playing juno's father or he can be playing a psychologist on law and order it's just or even like jk uh <laughs> j jonah jameson in spider-man he's sort of like every role that he takes on he sort of embodies so you can't see him playing any other role yeah and the fact that he as i said he can play an intense role like you know the lead the white uh the white brotherhood in oz mm -hmm. and at the same time play like a really nice sort of 
father sort of role in uh, yeah. in Juno, and you don't, you never see like the cat. It's not like Lance Henderson where you sort of like think, oh my god, he's too intense to play that sort of role. He's yeah. just like whatever role is in, it's like bam, he's that bam is that yeah and and you know what what really helps is that jk simmons is has this very like unique voice and a very commanding tone of voice that you know when he starts talking you know right away it's him and it it kind of like really gives a character so much power when he he, his voice becomes so convincing and, and 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 he's able to emote so much just just through, you know, like, his his subtle actions and that sort of thing. And that's why I'm saying, like, he's one of those actors that are very underrated in my mind because he is a really great actor, but I feel like he's always been in supporting roles. And he, you know, obviously, I think I think he ended up getting... He's getting some more main, main you know, uh, main roles. But, uh, I mean, I can't remember much. Like, sometimes J.K. Simmons is one of those persons that I, I kind of remember him somewhere but i don't really remember what movie um yeah yeah i know what you mean he's sort of like oh it's that guy he just sort of randomly turns up in places and yeah you're kind of happy he did <laughs> yeah um so yourself, yeah. Kim. yeah so my third is a movie that you had mentioned before <laughs> um so it's a 2013 um uh park chan wook stoker <laughs> The one that didn't oh, nice. make your list made my list in top three. <laughs> um, Stoker was actually one of my uh, was my favorite movie of that year, and um, why it made it on my list is because I essentially haven't rewatched Stoker since twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, probably. But I still remember the movie like I watched it yesterday. And I think that that says a lot about movies because I have a really crappy memory. Um, And the fact that there were some really powerful scenes here that, um, you know, obviously we have, you know, I mean, Stoker is kind of like uh, an English uh, English movie directed by a Korean, uh, a Korean director, obviously. And it has this kind of like thriller-esque style to it a bit of a dramatic style to it as you know this this uh you know this man ends up coming you know their her uncle charlie or something uh comes to live with her and her mother and this is you know matthew good is also one of those underrated actors that i feel like doesn't get the amount of recognition that he should because in this role he is absolutely you know charming and weird and and everything and at the same time you see you know uh mia wasikowska i don't know i never know if yeah. i'm saying her name <laughs> we right? say that yeah and she's she is you know she is a fairly young actress at this point when this came out and obviously she's gone on to do a lot more bigger things and and whatnot but she also you know comes into this very naturally as kind of like um somewhat of a loner and She's, you know, she comes into this place, uh, you know, she's kind of a bit, you know, infatuated by this uncle that's, <laughs> that's arrived. Um, and there are some really intense scenes. And it's just, and, and it, it's crazy because I can remember these scenes so well about just the tension of it. And you're just watching this and you're like, oh shit, oh shit, oh my god, what is going on, you know? And I don't really, you know, have that big of reactions when I watch movies, but... It was one of those movies that really you can feel that tension in this family and and that, you know, just 
Um, some of it is just bordering on that, you know, is this right? Is this wrong? Is, you know, what is going on? And oh, what is this mystery? And, and what is this plan? And, you know, and and it's done so well. It has so much style. All the screening is done. All the all the all the cinematography is done really well. And um, yeah, I mean, I I you know I can talk about this movie all day. <laughs> it's it's so it's so great. It is it is such a really really outstanding movie. Yeah, Stoke is a really fantastic film. Again, Patrick Wook, one of my all-time favorite directors. I think the reason I didn't add this on the list is I recently watched it as part of the Fed Days of Halloween, and at the same time, when it's not the sort of film that you include in that sort of film watching marathon, it's it's a film that's very much a slow burn. It takes yeah. its time and and doesn't ravel. And it's a very sort of visually distinctive film and isn't the sort of uh, cinematic junk food that you want to really be con- consuming during that sort of movie so watching sort of marathon but really fantastic performance as well as well as a great script by Wentworth Miller who yeah. ri- wrote it under the pseudonym of uh, Ted Folk mm-hmm. as he wanted uh, basically it to sort of work on the strength of the work rather than who he was as yeah. an actor um, also uh, features Nicole Kidman doing her indie yes. thing and She's always interesting when she does indie projects, and I mean, she's at the point now where she can just basically switch back and forth between, you know, a a list projects and doing these little indie films. And yeah. I think it's she really does a she really does a really sort of fantastic role as a sort of linchpin of the whole thing. But mm. a film which uh, was sold on the tagline of "Do not disturb the family." They're disturbed enough already. Um, <laughs> This one that's really worth uh, checking out, and I'm really interested to see if Patrick Wick obviously returns to do more English language films in future. As he sort of returned to uh, his native career to do The Handmaids and his adaptation of uh, Fingersmith yeah. uh, after this. So, as yet, it's uh, it's sort of up in the air whether he's going to return or not. But mm. even if it is just his one sort of English language film, it's certainly an interesting one and showed that he's able to say transfer his skills and style outside of his native career and bring it over to uh the western filmmaking system which not a lot of directors have been able to do so yeah so uh moving on to number two uh number two is a film which is seen as a counter to a film that i've I think we both really enjoyed, and that's uh, Sophia Coppola's Lost in Translation. Um, going to be talking, about, of course, about 2013's Her, directed by her former husband, Spike Jones. And both films dealt with sort of problematic relationships. We saw, obviously, the with uh, Coppola's Lost in Translation, we saw the husband and wife character who were sort of struggling to hold the relationship together amongst work commitments and with her we get to sort of see the fallout and the sort of breakdown of a relationship and this is why many people have sort of drawn comparisons and tied the two films together and how that they mirror the sort of stages that uh, both Sophia Coppola and her former husband were at the time but this is a film which really sort of marked Jones out as a Oscar talent and also marked the debut of himself as a screenwriter because before this he appointed worked largely with Charlie Kaufman on the likes of Adaptation and being John Malkovich and here we have a film which kind of uh, on the surface it seems kind of out there in the fact that we have a a man essentially falling in love with his his phone in particular it's Siri style function uh, voiced by 
um, Scarlett Johansson and this art artificially intelligent um, sort of um, personal assistant um, that he's able to sort of carry on this this relationship with and I thought it was a really good sort of commentary on our own sort of connection that we have with our our personal technology and you know how we've all come to rely on on our the use of our phones and computers to get everything done and this relationship we have and it sort of takes it to that extreme well at the same time never f feels sort of outlandish or you know that would never sort of happen and I think it's a, a really fantastic film. Uh, certainly it sees um, Joaquin Phoenix doing a different sort of role than we've previously seen. It's a very sort of... A man who's sort of very withdrawn, very in himself. And the sort of role that we saw him sort of tapping into again when he did Joker more recently. So, um, this, as I said, this is a film that I just really, just really enjoyed. And thought it was it was kind of sweet and... A very interesting take on uh, on Jones making a romantic movie. Yeah, haven't seen this one either. Okay. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to go through a lot of this, um, depending on what your number one pick is. But yeah, no, um, no, this has been on my list for a while too. It's like I said, Oscar movies tend to take a while for me to get around. Yeah, to. it also takes a while to get on Netflix most of the time. So that's that's also one of the reasons why by the time that it gets on Netflix, the hype is over and I forget that it exists. <laughs> and then I don't feel like watching it anymore. Um, yeah, but I mean, I do like Scar Scarlett Johansson and, you know, the the project that she picks a lot. So um, her always had this really nice appeal to kind of like this, um, this kind of like, uh, the, the, you know, just this appeal of, of, of really technology being, you know, like your companion. Um, and, you know, finding some kind of solace and some kind of uh, building some kind of relationship with them. Uh, which is something that, you know, can be imagined, especially, you know, if we watch it nowadays where, you know, you can play, you can play like, what was that? You can play like Elder Scrolls with, with your, whatever, Siri or Echo or something. So, you know, so, you know, it's, it's kind of like your, your technology has already replaced a lot of everything in the world. So, you know, I'm. It'll be interesting to definitely watch her at some point. I mean, maybe we'll we'll even uh, put in uh, uh, Spike Jones in yep. in one of our our uh, directors at one point. I'm not sure, but we'll see. he's certainly on, he's certainly one that we talked about on the list. As and yep. when that season will appear is kind of up in the air. There's there's a few directors in front of him, um, yeah. but he will be one that we get through to eventually at some point. Mm. So yes. But uh, yourself, Kim, what uh, failed to make that sort of elusive uh, number one spot? And, uh, uh, the number two spot? The number two, yep. <laughs> my, uh, my number two is actually a movie that um, I feel is one of uh, Martin Scorsese's more underrated movies, and I feel like doesn't get talked about as much, and that's 2011's Hugo, um, based on kind of like an orphan living in the walls of a train station in 1930s, and he ends up, you know, meeting... Uh, the founding father of pretty much, you know, the cinema that we know now, um, yeah. George Melius. And, um, you know, he obviously the story is about uh, George Melius being a part of it, played wonderfully by uh, Ben Kingsley. Yes, Ben Kingsley. I haven't seen a movie by him in a long time. Um, yeah, but then, you know, 
Um, the, the orphan is played by um, Asa Butterfield, who I think at that point was when I really... I don't know if that was his debut role, but I really do like him after that role and um, just his acting and all that uh, is, you know, for a young actor, it was really, really great. And paired up with, you know, Chloe Grace Moretz, who was also a, a, a really good um, young actress as well, you know, as they they look in the world of, you know, the fascination of just um, this this uh this the walls of this train station and everything that happens in it and you know the whole mechanical elements and the the automaton that he's trying to put together and and you know the story about him and his his late father and and that sort of thing and i think that the magic of it is not only the city but just visually how magical this whole story feels yeah, it's one I've never seen, even though I am a Scorsese fan. I think it was the idea of uh, Scorsese doing a, a kid's pick that sort of never really sort of... Uh, it just never really sort of uh, grabbed me. I know it's constantly on <laughs> TV, but I've just never got around to watching it. But So uh, it w- it'll be one I will get around to watching at some point, much like The Irishman, if I ever find a spare four hours to watch it. So... I don't know what it is with Scorsese. He just keeps making longer and longer movies. It's like when Casino came out, it's like, oh, this is three hours long. It's like, wow. And then it's like the Irishman is sort of like, oh, it's now you've got four hours of De Niro and Pacino and uh, Joe Pesci to enjoy. So. But yeah, Hugo I will eventually get around to watching at some point. So Yeah, so what is in your number one spot? Uh, number one is a film which, when it was first announced, a lot of people dismissed on its concept alone. And since then, it's a film that I've watched countless times. Certainly when I was working for the cable company and we would have the movie channel on, this would be like my go-to film. I just always wanted to have one in the background. And uh, that is the Facebook movie, better known as The Social Network. Um, directed by David Fincher. Here we obviously get to see the history of facebook uh, from its uh, conception to uh, its rise as the old dominating force based on the book the accidental billionaires this film features a absolutely standout performance by jesse eisenberg um who we all sort of assume would go on to do like amazing things and he's kind of been sort of hit and miss since this film's come out but the film itself uh, stars um, season co-star with Andrew Andrew Garfield, Justin Timberlake, Army Hammer. Army Hammer, you get twice as uh, much with as he plays identical twins. Who um, the Winklevoss, who um, initially initially contract uh, Mark Zuckerberg to build them a a site uh, for for the Harvard connection um, and he basically just takes the idea and builds his own with Facebook um, in particular the scene I really love is just uh, the opening sort of scene where we see Zuckerberg recently dumped from his girlfriend and decides to hack his university network to create a rating system where he puts the the girls of his university against farmyard animals in the hotter who's, which one's hotter um, all while drunken live blogging at the same time. It's just... I sort of separate it from the real Zuckerberg. I mean, Zuckerberg himself actually took his uh, the employees of Facebook to go and see it and um, had said that he actually liked the film, even though Fincher missed the sort of 
who he is as a person as he felt that um the the film version of uh of, of himself didn't sort of capture this idea of someone who just likes to build things which he views himself as being um but then again zuckerberg is kind of like an oddball mm-hmm. so it's um as i said I, I don't think anyone expected this movie to be as good as it is and certainly when you have a powerhouse like fincher behind it it really adds a lot to the film as it has that wonderful digital style it's got a fantastic soundtrack again by trent razor and atticus ross which really sort of marked them out as soundtrack titans and uh here they really add so much to the film in what's obviously unfolding on the screen and it it's as i said it's just something i just constantly love to see i mean i could sit here and just do a list of 50 things i love about that movie uh there's just so many individual shots and moments in it that just sort of stand out and it's you a movie about facebook doesn't deserve to be as good as the social network is and it's Mm -hmm. As I say, it just never lost anything, even after like multiple repeat viewings. It's still as interesting and as exciting as it was that first time round. So mm. that's uh, as surprising as it might be. Someone's social network is just my film of this decade. <laughs> and and the great part for you is that it actually was in 2010, so it was the beginning of the decade, and it's held up the entire decade. <laughs> so you know, I I personally I haven't seen it mostly because um, I I just haven't seen it i'm not a big fan no. of bio biographical movies um i get around to them i watch a few of them every once in a while um this one definitely has a lot of good you know talk and i'm a big fan of jesse eisenberg but i don't know why i keep putting this one off i i'm but you know since you put it in number one i feel now that i need to watch it <laughs> but then i mean <laughs> i feel like our fincher season is coming soon so maybe i can save it for then yeah and i mean i'm just looking at Eisenberg's sort of filmography here and you see that he does like films like you know The Squid and the Whale or 30 Minute um, um, American Ultra these like really fun little indie movies and then he goes off and makes you know weird career choices like doing The Village or Cursed uh, that wizard that um, oh that horrible werewolf movie so I just wish uh, I just want him just to make weird in, quirky indie movies or just work with Fincher because Fincher seems to know how to 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 do him and much like um and you see him in films like The Double and it's like why can you not be making more movies like this I do not need to see To Roam With Love or 30 Minutes or Less or you trying to play Lex Luthor in uh, the <laughs> Justice League so yeah but uh yeah that's uh that's that's what what's in it. my number one. But Kim, what was uh, your number one of the decade? My number one was actually I I felt this has been the best of the decade since we talked about this. Um, cool. So yeah, it's uh, 2016's Hidden Figures. Um, I watched it this year and uh, like the beginning of this year sometime. And I think the Hidden Figures is, you know, obviously let's let's start with what it is. Uh, Hidden Figures is pretty much a story of um, a team of, you know, uh, you know, three female African-American mathematicians who ended up serving a really vital role to uh, the NASA in, you know, in the early years of their U.S. space program. And it's played beautifully and so charismatically by Taraji uh, Henson, Octavia Spencer and Janelle Monet. you know. All really great actresses 
for who they are. And, and, you know, Octavia Spencer is, you know, obviously, you know, we saw her in, um, we've talked about how great she is in, you know, The Shape of Water. And, uh, you know, obviously I, I really liked her before from The Help where, you know, I think that was one of her first roles that she did that would really yeah. got popular. Um, and Hidden Figures is, is, you know, it has a really great cast of characters, but at the same time, like, you know, whether it's supporting or just these three ladies, it's very different from, um, the normal, you know, movies where you would watch about, you know, three women who obviously, you know, the plot is going to be about, um, bringing up, you know, how, um, African-American women back then, uh, being both African-American and a woman, was not treated equally and not having the recognition that they did for all the contribution that they, you know, the, the, all the things they were able to contribute to, to just, you know, being able to, you know, to the space program and everything. And not only were these three women so interesting to watch, but at the same time, it was such a lighthearted kind of drama. It was about women who were fighting for themselves, but at the same time, it, it was so funny because of how they took their characters. Um, you know, the, the little moments that they used, uh, you know, like how the story progresses. And I think what really carries it might not really be all about the story, but more about just these three women being able to give these amazing performances that just carries the story forward. Definitely so. This was in my uh, also run section, and it's a film that really sort of resonate with a lot of people sort of word of mouth got, got around and I think whenever you've got like you mentioned obviously about the the issues of uh, segregation and uh, sexism obviously of the period and I think it's important to remember these things and certainly the film touches upon these issues without it becoming this overwhelming yeah. whelming subject that sort of overshadows the accomplishments of these ladies because they're all in their own way provided such key roles within the NASA space program and the fact that here we have um, a sort of period where they hired mathematicians to be human computers because they have no computers to to work anything out so they just hired mathematicians to work things out um, the manual way that we uh, that they used to and the I love the scene where she's basically uh, uh, when you've got um Kevin Costner's sort of supervising yeah. he's like oh why are you late it's like oh I'm going to use the the color bathroom but it's like the other side of the <laughs> other side of the facility and he's like what do you mean it's like well because of segregation he just goes and takes the segregation sign off and throws it across the room and he's like there we go <laughs> so it's just this the fact that it's showing like people willing to change to see each other as equals and you know the to look past these these things which were considered social norms and it's astounding to think of the fact that you know there was a time and it's i mean this is 1961 so it's not a huge time ago where you had segregation inside you know you had yeah. colored bus stops and you know the white privilege and the fact that there's this sad people out there who still want to see these things out there and it's just astounding the fact that you would think that these sort of things wouldn't exist so recently in in terms of like historical scale and i think it's does a really good job of reminding us of that segregation that was there and at the same time just knows where the story focus needs to lie and uh certainly it's it gave these uh these three women the recognition that they they needed to they much deserved and i think that nasa following the release of the film made a bigger 
deal with it as well. I think they mm-hmm. they did um they, they did a, a bigger tribute to to the work that they obviously provided the program and other women uh, women within the program as well that had I think previously been more overlooked by their male counterparts. So mm. that's good. So uh, yeah, very good pick. Very good pick. Um, so yeah, um, obviously that's our our own individual top ten. So you've got a list of our. Our, our top 20 of the decade that we will be putting up on the blog so if you uh, missed any of those titles you can check those out but uh, before we obviously wrap this up I mean was there anything in your also run sort of pile that you wanted to highlight at all? Uh, I mean I mentioned a lot of it there I mean I had the hell tigers are not afraid the hate you give um, I think some of the other ones that didn't that you know I really wanted to put in but I wasn't sure if you would was uh, Kong Skull Island um Mad Max Fury Road, because you really like that. I just was surprised it didn't make it on. And then, you know, Pacific Rim was also really good. It was really nice effort of everything. And um, I think another movie that kind of I thought about that I really liked when it first came out and I haven't gone back to rewatch is Ex Machina, which got such a big deal. I think it was, what, 2013, 2014? And then kind of faded away. And I think the last thing is um, I think I had a really high... Like, I was really thinking, debating heavily on putting We Need to Talk About Kevin because that was such an amazing movie also. Yes, definitely. Uh, we Need to Talk About Kevin. Tilda Swinton had been screwed out of a much-deserved Oscar the same year that Drive also got snubbed by the Oscar committee as well. So, yeah. um, yes, and I'd say Don't Mean to Talk About Kevin, definitely one that uh, people should be checking out especially for yeah. a rare leading role by Tilda Swindon who just knocks it out of the park like she does it for everything yeah 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 I mean obviously if you know I, I really wanted to put a Nolan at one point and I, I thought about it and I think the Inception was really good um but I don't have the same love for it that everybody else has so that's why I didn't make my list uh, yeah, I mean, the problem I have with Inception is the fact that, for myself, it's just, I just see the comparison, see where Nolan's borrowing his inspiration from Paprika, okay. um, the film best of Tashi Khan, and, yeah. yeah, I mean, I really enjoy Inception, and, but, and I also enjoy Paprika in the same way, but I think Nolan's... I think because Nolan's got always got that sort of hype around his projects that you can't if a, with directors got a lot of hype around their projects same way that you know I didn't include any like Tarantino projects in this list yeah. in the fact that you know it's already acknowledged the fact that these are awesome yeah. films I for some reason it, in my mind it doesn't feel the need to sort of put them on the list um, the same way that Mad Max Fury Road I mean that's I agree it's absolutely phenomenal film and I think it's made that number one slot of many people sort of like top films of the decades but mm-hmm. when it came to components it was sort of like i just really want to highlight these films and yeah. not just tell people to you know what they know already i mean i think everyone knows at this point the man max Fury wrote an awesome movie and <laughs> me having it on my <laughs> list isn't I'm really gonna help with that. most most top tens will not add mad max fury road that's not gonna really? make it I'm, I'm fairly certain them... ex machina might make it in there but mad max i i really don't know I think um, we're moving in different critic circles because every top ten of the list I have is like in there at number one. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I've, like, I've seen at... some top tens, and a lot of them have put Inception in number one, which. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know Heather over at Head of Time put it as her number one a pick when she did her top forty of the decade. So. Uh... 
Yeah, no, I mean, if, if we did, like, a, you know, top whatever, you know, I would I would have, you know, all these movies would have been put in there at some point or another. But, um, you know, were there any movies that, you know, you felt that you left out that, you know, you considered putting in? And Yeah, I mean, there was uh, definitely a, a few that, uh, that sort of came close to it. Um, two by Jeremy Solner, uh, first being Blue Room, which is his sort of thesis on revenge which is just really fantastic and it's follow-up green room mm-hmm. which a film that was sold on the idea of patrick stewart playing a neo-nazi and it's a reverse heist movie uh, sorry a reverse siege movie which i thought was really interesting to see is rather than the people trying to um stop people getting in here we have a group who are trying to get out <laughs> of a situation yeah. as uh, we have the band to a see something that they shouldn't and basically find themselves locked in a a uh, green room as they are sort of surrounded by hopped up psychotic neo-nazis who are determined to make sure that they don't escape um it's a film that was just like constantly surprising with its bursts of violence and just absolute nail-bite intention to the uh, end it's sort of like when the people like throw around the the uh, term of like edge of your seat thriller mm-hmm. and it never sort of lives up to that reputation. Here is a film that definitely does, and much the way that Argo did. Yeah. Um, but um, no, Jeremy Sonner, I'm really excited to see what he does next. Sadly, he hasn't gone with another coloured title. As everyone wanted, he was sort of like, you know, after Blue Ruin, Green Room, that we wanted, you know, Yellow Something, perhaps. <laughs> or maybe the Red Room, and that would be like the Dark Web. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, sadly, that wasn't uh, come to pass. Uh, another film which I really love and I think you love as well but nobody else seems to agree with us on uh, is Sucker Punch uh, yeah. well I don't love it as much as you do oh. I like it I've, I've moved from dislike to like and I think that's already okay. a good step so um, where's well, a film I enjoyed discussing with you on, yeah. <laughs> on the show yeah. it's, it's cinematic candy it's just you know here we have a director in Zack Snyder who is just basically going, you know, it would be really cool to do if we put like, <laughs> put like World War Two weaponry in a fantasy movie, or if we did like schoolgirls and samurai swords yeah. and brothels and just let's just throw all the ideas I want to cover the screen. And very few directors get chance to just do what the hell they want. I mean, obviously you got like, um. You get to movies like The Fountain, The Lost Empire, uh, Lost Empire, where directors are just basically throwing what they like at the screen and seeing what sticks. And I think Sucker Punch was one of those movies. And I know there's people out there who like it, and there's a lot of people out there who hate it. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, each to as, their own. As with most Zack Snyder Snyder films right now, so. I know he's a very <laughs> underrated director, and it's, it's think... just his movies are are very you know on the fence, and I think that. It's one of the reasons why I think we we were talking about you know having him at what in one season at one point because it it would create some really interesting conversation mostly because I think we sit on very opposite um, sides mm. of the spectrums for all the movies that he's done. I think he's also a director that sort of really suits our format in just the fact that we go through a filmography, much like with Paul W S Anderson, yeah. a director I have so much more respect of after we did him in that first season. Yeah. And you know, you notice all like the visual sort of styles and vi- uh, things that sort of re- reappear throughout his films and stuff. But um, uh, the last one that I would uh, include would be uh, the Brand New Testament, uh, directed by Jaco Van Doman. It's a uh, f- French movie. 
mm. where uh, God lives in a um, apartment building in Brussels and uh, is basically a grumpy sadist who basically created humankind so that he had something to torment and uh, controls reality through his computer um, that he basically forbids his family that that uh, he lives with from touching and one day his 10 year old daughter Ia uh, sneaks into his office and basically starts changing uh, the world around him at the same time creating her own testament where she selects her own apostles and uh, follows in the footsteps of her brother Jesus to create this brand new testament it's a really fun uh, French comedy and has a lot of that sort of if you're into sort of French co- uh, comedies you'll really sort of get a kick out of it but one that's definitely one uh, worth checking out hmm. I've never heard of it so okay <laughs> it's occasionally on Netflix so when it appears again I will I will um, urgently email you to check it out <laughs> awesome but yeah that uh, wraps up our list we hope you've enjoyed listening to this show uh, thank you as always for listening and if you haven't done all that already hit the like and subscribe buttons and you know leave us a review let us know what you think of the show and certainly let us know what you think uh, would have made your decade less we'd love to hear from it you can of course also interact with us on Facebook and Twitter we're also on Instagram as well and uh, we also have our blog which is uh, movies and tea podcast dot com where we have our full archive of all our seasons uh, to date and uh, where you can also uh, tune into our current season where we are currently looking at the filmography of Ang Lee and uh, yes we'd, uh, look, we're certainly looking forward to many exciting directors that we got got uh, sort of lined up for future seasons and uh, including as Kim mentioned we've got our David Fincher season coming up as well so uh, definitely plenty of exciting content to come so thank you as always again for listening and uh, we will be back uh, soon continuing our look at the Angley filmography but until next time goodbye